looking at is the Bible really God's word? And given the central importance of the word of God, that's probably a pretty significant question to ask. If everything we do is based upon the Bible, we probably want to know um, that the Bible actually is God's word. And then starting in June, we'll be starting our next book of the Bible to work through, which will be working through the book of Exodus. So there you go. Don't need to think, how's this going to connect to Mother's Day? And you know what we're doing. Let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we can call upon you as our Heavenly Father. That all who so believed and called upon you, you gave the right to be called children of God. Lord, this has not been done by us achieving a standard, ticking certain boxes, but our salvation is dependent solely upon the work of Jesus Christ, received through faith. And Lord, we thank you that you are not a God who is silent and you are not a God who is distanced from your people. You have made yourself known in creation. You have made yourself known in your your God-inspired written word. And you have made yourself known in the person of Christ who has entered into our struggle and who died a death on our behalf. And if you look at this question, as it is often attacked heavily in the media, is the Bible truly God's word? We pray that we might have the full assurance that as we hold your Bible, that we indeed have your very revelation direct to us. And Lord, we pray that you would... Um, guide us and you would guide me as I speak and Lord by your spirit that you would affirm our truth to us and Lord that we would be changed as we see you for all of who you are we ask in Jesus name, Amen Who remembers the name Bell Gibson? Not Mel Gibson, I know I don't always speak clearly Bell Gibson Oh Simon does, well done Simon I wish I had lollies to throw at us prizes but I don't for those who want a bit of extra clues, anyone remember an app or a book called The Whole Pantry? If I put the book together and the photo together, maybe it might start to come together. What it was, it originally began as an app, mainly providing recipes that were gluten-free, that were dairy-free, that were free of refined sugar. But that in itself wasn't the reason why it got into the news. I mean, there's lots of books talking about all sorts of healthy eating claims and a, and a healthy recipe book in itself isn't a bad thing. As a matter of fact, it's probably a good thing. The reason why it got big in the news is because of the claims that the author made. The author said that she had had many different forms of cancer and through the power of fruit and vegetables, these types of recipes got her free of cancer. So it goes from just being a recipe book. If it's just a recipe book, you might think, oh, well, that, that could be good for me. I, I might choose to use the recipe book or not. But when the author comes with a claim is this sort of thing can cure you of cancer, that demands attention. And it's very similar when it comes to the Bible. The Bible makes very big claims. Now, some people consider the Bible to be just nice, good, ethical or moral teaching, something you can take it or leave it. But if the claims of God himself about the Bible are true, then it's not just something that can merely be considered as potentially helpful for you to take or not, but something that demands our attention and a response. This is the way it is revealed, as, as Paul writes to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learnt it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's a pretty big claim, isn't it? This saying, saying that all of this book that we have is actually the very message from God. It is breathed out by God and it is profitable that we might be complete lacking no good thing, provided for every good work. Now that's a big claim from the author. That is what distinguishes it between whether it's just something you might choose to read as a little book that's got some nice, helpful, ethical teaching. But if it actually claims to be the word of God, the almighty God who created all things, has authority above all power and authority, then it's a book that demands attention. Today, first of a two-part series looking at these questions. Is the Bible truly God's word? Now, in fairness, one thing we need to recognise when we quote there from 2 Timothy, at the time when Paul's writing, 67, 68 AD, to Timothy, what did he call, when he referred to scripture, what did he refer to? The New Testament at that point in time had not been formed. So he had in mind when he wrote those words, specifically the Old Testament. But don't we use that term scripture to refer to the entirety of the Bible? I'll put it to you that we should, and we'll see why we should. But in the last 10 years, through news articles, through things in newspapers, through blogs, through popular books that get released, there have been some big questions raised about whether we can trust this book, whether it's got anything to do with God at all, whether its contents are true, whether over the years it's been corrupted. For many people who are not Christian, people read these things and they think, see, Christianity, it's all fake. The book's a farce. Even some Christians hear and read this material and think, I'm not sure if I've got an answer for that. But the Christian faith is built upon this as genuinely being God's revelation to mankind. As Samuel often says, says we call the Eastgate Bible Church, Bible's our middle name. It's something that we place a great emphasis upon. As a minister of a church, it would be a complete waste of my time if the Bible is not actually God's word. This is what we're going to look at over the next two weeks. The questions we're looking at this morning is, what do we mean by the term scripture? How do we know that scripture is God's word? Why does the Roman Catholic Bible have more books? And are today's Bibles actually accurate? And just so you know what we're going to cover next week, how and was the New Testament formed and who decided what books belonged in? Um, Why don't we have original manuscripts of the New Testament if people thought they actually were um, the word of God, why didn't they have, why don't we still have the original manuscripts? And seven, what about all these other gospels that historians claim to keep on finding? So that's where we're headed over these next two weeks. But our goal here is to have confidence that what you have in your hand is the very word of God. That these claims that you hear otherwise are not what they seem to be. That as you pick up and you read the word of God, that you will hear it as God himself speaking to you through the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
So firstly, what do we mean by scripture? The term translated scripture literally just means writings. But it was a term that was often used specifically in various contexts to refer to special or sacred writings. I would define scripture in a Christian context of God's written revelation to mankind communicated through men who wrote the books that we have in our scriptures. So why should we believe that scripture actually is God's word? And what defines what scripture is? We've already seen that one thing that defines what scripture is, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, all scripture is breathed out by God. That is, the origin of all of scripture is God himself. The source and content comes from God. This is God's teaching. This is not the teachings of men. Sometimes your translations say it's inspired by God. And I 100% love the doctrine of inspiration. But it's a term I probably don't use very often to say that it's inspired by God. And the only reason why I avoid using that term is because the way it sometimes gets used in other contexts. You know, when you go and see a movie and it says inspired by true events, it's a very different use than what we mean when we say the Bible's inspired. When a movie says it's inspired by real events, what do, what do they mean? They mean there's some of the real events and then they've added other bits in to make it sound more interesting. And that's not the impression I want people to get when we talk about the Bible being inspired. So breathe out by God, uh, which is a more literal way, is probably a bit more helpful to make sure that this is entirely very much a, the work of God. But the Bible is both a divine book, that is, God is the one who guided the authors, who restrained them so they wouldn't write things that they shouldn't have written. But it is also a human book. God didn't dictate them, tell them exactly word for word every single thing they must have. still contains the personality of those who wrote it, their style, their thoughts. Probably the best verse that speaks of that combination of it being both a divine and human work is in Second Peter. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See that repetition? None of this prophetic word, and we'll see in a minute that this idea of prophecy or prophets is not just limited to particular large books in the middle of the Old Testament, that the word prophet can rightly be applied to any of the biblical writers. Because effectively, a prophet is one who speaks on behalf of God with the full authority of God. He says, none of the prophecy of Scripture comes from man's interpretation or from their will, but comes entirely from God, written by human authors as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. To give you an example of what it means that you can refer to someone as a prophet who is not specifically Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, or the 12 minor prophets afterwards, look at Jesus quoting from Psalm 82, a Psalm of Asaph. He says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Think about also the way that which some people divide up the Old Testament. They speak of the law and the prophets. In other words, the writings of Moses and the prophets. Yet in Moses' own writings about himself in Deuteronomy 18.15 and 34.10, Moses is described as a prophet because he is declaring with the full authority of God the word of God. So as such, we can be confident 
that all scripture is actually God's message being delivered to us through human authors. Both Peter and Paul are thoroughly convinced of that. It's also important to recognise the Old Testament writers were often aware that they were speaking on behalf of God. For example, you hear expressions such as, and the word of the Lord came to, and then it goes to say exactly what the word of the Lord was. Jeremiah uses that. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I was formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. But 480 times just in the Old Testament, you had this expression, depending on your translation, thus says the Lord. Like the writers are very well aware that they are communicating the very words of God. Second reason why we should believe that these scriptures are indeed the word of God is we see the correlation that something which the scripture says, elsewhere the Bible say, that is what God says. They interchange with what the scripture says, God says. What God says is what the scripture says. Let me provide an example if that sounded a bit confusing. Or two examples. Genesis 12.3, this is God speaking. And he's speaking to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonours you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Yet Paul picks up on that quote, something which was God speaking in Genesis, saying, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So in Genesis, it's God said, In Galatians, Paul rightly says, the scripture says. God says, scripture says. And to put those on reverse, the other way around. In Genesis 2.24, where it's Moses making writing himself, says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So that's Moses writing that there in Genesis 2. Yet when Jesus picks up on that quote in Matthew 19, 4-5, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, male and female, so who created them from the beginning, male and female, God, that's the one, said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and two shall become one flesh. So in Genesis 2, Moses says, And even though it's actually Moses who's doing the saying there in Genesis chapter 2, Jesus has no problem saying that what Moses says is what God says in Matthew chapter 19. I could fill a whole morning with those types of examples, but you get the picture of where that's headed. So Peter and Paul are very confident that all of the scriptures are God's word. You see the analogy that what God says is what the scripture says and the other way around. But also the content too says something very much of the nature of it being a document which God has put together or a book. Historians, regardless of whether Christian or not, do not debate whether or not the Old Testament writings are written well in advance before Jesus was even born. The last of the writing prophets, Malachi, was at least 400 years before Jesus was born. And then you're going back to the beginning, back about 1,450 years before Jesus was born. Yet Jesus spoke of these Old Testament scriptures as he's on the road to Emmaus and he's chatting to these blokes and he says, in the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So these things written 400 to 1450 years before Jesus was even born, Jesus says, these things speak about me. And you, rather than that just being, oh, well, that's, that's an interesting little, little tidbit, a little bit of a fact. 
How does it, what's that got to do with the, the origin of the writings being from God? There are over 300 prophecies in these Old Testament writings from 400 years before Jesus to 1,450 years before Jesus that Jesus fulfilled. And you might think, oh, quite impressive. 300, that's quite a fair few. Now, someone who's really into doing the maths has calculated the mathematical odds of any one individual just fulfilling 48 Old Testament prophecies. So we're saying Jesus did over 300. This is someone who's put together the mathematical odds of any one individual fulfilling 48 of them. It's 1 in 10 to the power of 157. There's that big number there, 1 in that. And you think, oh, that's a pretty big number. That's pretty unlikely. And that's only for 48, and we're talking about over 300. And just for a little bit of perspective, I looked up online, Oz Lotto odds, that's the biggest jackpot in Australia, is 1 in 45 million. Doesn't that little number look minuscule compared to the one above it? No one thinks that they're going to win that at the slightest chance. And yet that number is so minuscule in comparison to Jesus just fulfilling 48, never mind 300 prophecies about from the Old Testament. And for a little bit extra trivia, even lower odds for a good million, Monday and Wednesday night lot is only one in eight million. And no one th- even thinks for a second that would be a chance. So it is impossible that for this just to be a human book for that to take place. That's the point I'm trying to get across. Now someone who might be sceptical takes the approach, Jesus just looked at his Old Testament, he thought, I'm going to do this, this, this and this. And now he reads Zechariah 9, 9, reads the thing about the donkey, he thought, let's arrange a donkey, I can do that. There's a big problem with that. A lot of the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, he had no control over. It's not to say Jesus said, okay, I'm going to make myself get born of the line of David. I'm going to make myself get born in Bethlehem. I'm going to make myself get crucified on a cross. I'm going to raise myself up. I'm going to make these men divide lots for my clothing. I'm going to arrange it so none of my bones are broken on the cross. All those things are completely outside of his control. He can't have just taken them up, plus we've already seen the odds of anyone actually doing that anyway. Well, that probably gives us a good perspective of the Old Testament. Paul and Peter, as the New Testament apostles, very clear that all of it's God's word. We see the connection that what has been spoken through the Old Testament authors, Jesus can happily say that is God speaking. We see the prophetic nature of the fulfilment that could only be if it's indeed the work of God who can foresee and foretell what Jesus has done. But do we have any indication, even in the New Testament writings, what the apostles considered to be the authoritative word of God? Do they give any indication that some of the stuff that we've got was actually God's word itself? Well, we've got evidence that even in the time of the New Testament writings, even Jesus' words as recorded in Luke's Gospel, were considered scripture. 1 Timothy 5.18, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labourer deserves his wages. That second quote, The labourer deserves his wages, comes from Luke 10.7. Yet Paul introduces that by saying, This is something that the scripture says. Also in Acts chapter 20, Paul refers to a quote from Jesus in order to communicate a point which he's trying to make. But it's not just a a vague reference like that. Peter actually speaks of the fact that even at the time in which he's writing there in the first century, that there were some of Paul's writings that were already considered to be scripture. 
Second Peter 3, 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So he's saying, what Paul, some of Paul's writings, they are scriptures, and they mess with his scriptures just like they do the other scriptures. So it's a very earlier attestation. Remember, that these are written sort of like 55 AD to 95 AD, that sort of time frame. You don't have photocopies, you can't just email them around, they're not going to spread quickly. But even very quickly in that small time frame, Peter can declare that Paul's writings, or some of them at least, were already accepted as scripture. What do we see after Acts? What were the, some of the things that characterized the church? Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Next week we're going to look a little bit more in terms of what did people say in the second century about, about the, the writings of the apostles and the letters we have in, in our New Testament and how was the New Testament put together. But it's pretty clear from what we've seen already, the Old Testament is definitely considered the authoritative word of God We've seen that the apostles have already at this early stage recognised Luke's loose gospel or Jesus quotes as being scripture and also it's part of Paul's writings considered to be scripture. Why is it that the, the Catholic Bible has extra books? That's our second question. The Roman Catholic Bible has a section called the Apocrypha which just literally means hidden away. Now, as you can imagine, you haven't had a writing prophet in Old Testament times from around 400 before, years before Christ. As you expect, people continue to write things. Just like today, Christians still write things about the Christian faiths and beliefs and all those types of things. Now, these particular books, they were never included as part of the Hebrew Scriptures. But let it be said, the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament that the apostles would have been using, still had these books as like an appendix. They were still packaged as part of the full thing, not saying that they were scripture, but saying these are useful things to read in, as a companion side reader, not as God's word, that tell you things about what people were thinking and also some of the significant historical events that go through it. Now, sometimes people think, oh, I'm not going to read those books, they're, they're evil, they're, they're Catholic. It's a pretty unusual idea to have. Up to the 1500s, it was always included with all of the scriptures as a separate sort of an appendix, as things that, are, that were profitable to read, not considered to be God's word, but things to consider in your thinking. Like, you know how, how opposed Martin Luther was to the Catholic Church? When he translated the Bible, he included it. Again, not saying it was God's word, but saying these things that are of interest and they're, they're worth reading for their historical value and to, think, to read what people were thinking during those times. Like there's a list there on the left there of the books that are extra that are not at all in our Bible and on the other side are books, uh, additions to writings that we already have. But should they be included or called scripture, the word of God? I know the truth. Even the Catholic Church never considered them scripture till the Council of Trent in 1546. Now often people were challenged thinking about where is your doctrine on these particular things? And they said, well, it's in this book. And everyone said, well, they're not scripture. And in that council, they decided 1,500 years later to decide these books were also to be counted as scripture. These books are never quoted by New Testament authors. 
The closest is in Hebrews 11.35 where there's a reference to a historical event that's also referred to in 2 Maccabees 6 and 7, but just because you're referring to a same historical event doesn't mean that you're... It's not saying, and the scripture says, or this is what God says. And there's nothing wrong about that. There's no sign the Jews considered them to be scripture. New Testament writers didn't quote them. Then it's probably not scripture. But as I said before, don't feel like they are books that must be avoided and you're unchristian if you read them. Christians throughout all the centuries have read them. But one thing I will say on that is people think, oh, I've never read that, I'm curious. My advice would be, if you haven't read every part of the Bible... Maybe you should do that first. But if you're interested in particularly the history in between the Old Testament and New Testament, uh, the books of First and Second Maccabees are a very interesting read. But here's the big one. You hear people make all these comments saying, the Bible's plagued with errors. They've corrupted it. It's gone all wrong. It's full of so many... The manuscripts are so many discrepancies. You can't trust it. Chuck it out. That's the sort of things you hear in the news. One popular writer, Bart Ehrman, has made a mint out of doing this. Three New York Times bestsellers. The fourth one I've got there on the list, I don't think he's made the bestsellers list, but just the titles give you a bit of an idea of the perspective he comes from. Now, he's a clever man. He's actually studied a PhD in Biblical Greek. So he's, he's not distant from the idea, but he's come to some very strange conclusions. 2003's book, Lost Scriptures, books that didn't make it into the New Testament. He's basically saying all these other Gospels should be in there. 2005, he has misquoting Jesus, the story of who changed the Bible and why. 2011, Forge, writing in the name of God, why the biblical authors are not who we think they are. And last year he brought out Jesus before the Gospels, how the earliest Christians remembered, changed and invented their stories of the Saviour. Now his books are big selling and he's a very good writer. And because he's got a PhD in these things, you think, man, this guy must know what he's talking about. And to the average person who would pick up something that he's written, you'd be convinced. The Bible's an absolute sham, you'd think. Let me just give you one of the quotes to give you an idea of the types of things that he writes and why this causes such great doubts to some people. He's talking about there being discrepancies or differences in the manuscripts of the New Testament. He says, some scholars will tell you there's 200,000 differences. Some will tell you 300,000. Some say 400,000. I don't know. It's something like that. Between 300,000 and 400,000 would be my guess. How would that make you feel? How we trust the, the New Testament be the word of God and here is someone who's done heaps of research, specialises in New Testament Greek and he says there's 300 to 400,000 differences in the manuscripts. Now, now I'm going to really rock your bait. What if I told you that was true? And it is. What would you imply from that? You think, no way is the Bible reliable. 300 to 400,000 differences in the manuscripts. That's got to be crazy. Must be completely different. How do we know what's right? I think Bart likes the idea of you thinking like that. It's an extraordinary claim. But there's a lot of things that it doesn't say which we, he doesn't raise. If I have one manuscript of something, how many discrepancies have I got? None. Because they've only got one, they all agree. There are 5,700 New Testament manuscripts, more than any other historical document. So you imagine there will be some differences. But the main thing that Bart Ehrman never explains is what is the nature of those differences? 
Because when you read that, you think, oh, they must say completely different messages. Well, let me tell you what the nature of these differences are. And now you might start to feel a bit relieved because you're thinking, I can't believe it, Steve just said there's these hundreds of thousands of differences. Spelling mistakes is the majority of those things. That's the highest of these 300,000 differences. Now, I know for some of you who are spelling freaks, you're like, oh, I can't believe it. Spelling mistakes. Slight difference in the order of the words. Anyone who started Koine Greek realise you can switch the words in the order around a little bit and it actually doesn't change the meaning at all. Copying errors. Like someone's accidentally missed a word or missed a line, but you can see because we have so many manuscripts that, whoops, that guy's just left that bit out. All of those things make pretty much nothing in terms of meaning and practice. When it comes down to how many do people actually have a, something to debate about at all? Less than 10. That's significantly different than 300,000 to 400,000, isn't it? And we're going to look at what the two biggest ones, and when you see the, what the two biggest ones, you go, oh, is that what he's on about? Bit of a drama queen, isn't he? I mean, those who copied the manuscripts did so with utmost diligence. Now, this is the word of God they're handling with. This wasn't something they were going to mess around with. Do you ever think they ever made funny notes when they found someone who missed bits out or changed things? Well, they did. Check this out, 13th century gags. You see here the Codex Vaticanus, someone is copying from that and he's noticed that something in that is different than all of the others. And I've put up there his translation that he's written, a little side reference note. He's written, stupidest and wicked man, leave the original, don't change it. They love a good gag back in the 13th century. So Bart Ehrman gives you the impression that they're so unreliable, all these differences, which we now have seen, none of them really make any difference at all whatsoever. The other thing he doesn't say is that the New Testament, by the means which they measure the historical accuracy of historical documents, is the most reliable one we have. Now, things they measure, such as how many manuscripts do we have? Like when they're spread geographically far and wide, we can actually test and compare one another, see if they're conveying the same message. How, how many years have transpired between when they were written and the earliest copies we have? Just to look at, we're not going to go through this in detail, but look, in terms of number of manuscripts, New Testament, 5,795. The nearest to that is 4,000 less, which is Homer, which is 1,757. And then the next one behind that is 340. That's a significant difference. It also gives you some idea of how important the early people consider these writings to be because you're not going to copy something that frequently if it's, if it's a useless reading. Look at the gap between the, the times which they were written, the earliest manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts we have. New Testament, 40 years. Closest behind that is 200 but then look at some of the books that we that no one ever questions. Plato, 1,300 years between the time it was written and the oldest manuscript we have. No one writes big books about how much of a scam Plato is, do they? It's a historically reliable document and these claims that get made in the media do not much have much, have much to stand on. So what are these two dramatic major things I'll give them to you. First, I'm going to get you turning your Bible to Mark chapter 16, verse 8. As in actually turn, because it actually helps, because you'll have possibly something different in front of you, amongst all of you. Now, depending on your translation, 
Verse 8 might be the last version, last verse in, in Mark. If you have another translation, it might go up to verse 20 or even less. Or it might have verses 9 to 20 in a square brackets or in italics or a little footnote. But whatever you have, at the end of verse 8, you'll probably have a little, little footnote and a little comment that says something like this. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20. Then when you read the details down the bottom, this is from the ESV's footnotes. Some manuscripts end the book with 16.8. Others include verses 9 to 20 immediately after verse 8. At least one manuscript inserts additional material after verse 14. Some manuscripts include after verse 8 the following, but they reported briefly to Peter and to those with him all that they had been told. After this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and indispensable proclamation of eternal salvation. And then they continue with the content of verses 9 to 12 that most people have there. In other words, it's certain up to verse 8 and then there's a variety of different endings amongst the manuscripts. The oldest ones finish at verse 8. But where verse 8 finishes, it kind of appears in comparison to the other Gospels to be incomplete. And it appears that some people have tried to give them a similar sort of ending where Jesus is commissioning his disciples and have added things to it. Because the only thing that's consistent always in all of them is up to verse 8 after then it seems a bit of a mixed bag. Hence why early Bibles say this, this bit was not in the earliest manuscripts. They're probably saying Mark probably didn't write these bits but we're not 100% certain so we're going to leave them there you make up your own mind. But should we be concerned if we have these 12 verses that probably weren't written by Mark? My answer is probably not a great deal because without the exception of half of verse 18, nothing that's said in those 12 verses, I mean everything other than half of verse 18 is actually said in other Gospels. So there's nothing unusual about all of the content except for the half of verse 18, which will be, stand out pretty obviously, where it says, they will pick up serpents with their hands and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Now, for the record, I'm not going to drink poison or pick up snakes to find out whether or not that is the authoritative word or God or not. I'm presuming that it probably wasn't. So, would I bother to preach on that passage alone? Probably not. But as I said, if I'm preaching faithfully through the other Gospels, everything that's taught in that section except for the snakes and poison you'll find in there so that's the biggest drama the second one you go yeah whatever the second one is in john seven fifty three through to eight eleven. the story of the woman caught in adultery you don't necessarily need to look it up but you can if you want to same thing you'll find a footnote saying this is not found in the earliest manuscripts it'll also say some manuscripts have it in a different location and other things like that in other words, it appears that most likely John didn't record this particular event. Now, we don't know if it was a historical event and people have added in or whatever it is, but whatever the case is, it does not say anything in those things in terms of interaction of the woman caught in adultery that is contrary to the nature of the character of Jesus that we've seen throughout the rest of the things. If the event is true, it's very similar to what we would expect Jesus to do. And to think... Of all this big claim of 300 to 400,000 differences, if that's the second biggest drama, I'm really worried about the Bible, aren't I? They're the two two biggest concerns out of a potential so-called big dramatic claim of 300 to 400,000 differences. Now, on Friday night, we had planned on having the school of preachers end up being cancelled because Kenzie was extremely sick. 
In the book that we've been studying through on that, and for the record, the School of Preachers postponed until the 26th of, of May, one of the quotes in the book that we've been reading says something along the lines of this. If all you do is explain something, you have failed to preach. And I've got to admit, this is a very different than the type of sermons that I would normally do. There is a, a sense, a fair bit of teaching and teaching information. But one cannot rightly think about God and to ponder who God is without being personally affected. Now, I'm not just teaching you things so you can say, oh, I know some new things about the Bible and, and how it was put together and, and what Bart Ehrman says. It's not the goal. It helps, but it's not the goal in and of itself. The Bible is God's word. That is an important fact. It's, it's a bigger question more than whether or not I'm wasting my time as a minister of a church. But that is a big, important thing. Remember what the Bible claims of itself. It claims to be God's word, breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, that's a huge thing in and of itself, that this book claims to be the word of God, the almighty God who created all things. And we have that written in a book that we can read and have access to any point in time. Now, that should actually stir up something in you that God reveals himself to mankind and you have his words written in a book. Most of us have multiple of them. The one who made us, the one who therefore knows most intimately what we need, what we are like, has given us his word. Yet you see people dive on left, right and centre for these self-help books written by people which may have some good tips that might help. Yet the one who made us, remember when something goes wrong with your car, who do you go? You go to your manufacturer, they know, they know how all the stuff works. The very God who created us and had a purpose for creating us tells us what we were created for. Tells us what he has done to save us. Tells us who we are. Tells us how we live in relationship with him. Imagine if I told you I got a letter from the Queen. Apart from the fact you might say, Steve, you're looking all right for 100 years old. But imagine she just wrote me a letter because she thought Steve's a pretty good bloke. You'd probably be quite impressed and think, how come the Queen would write to you? Now, people get letters from celebrities, they frame them, they put them up on the wall. The Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, his written, revealed word we have. And some of us have got it sitting on a shelf and don't look at it. When we pick up the Bible, we're not just looking about something that, wow, this is historically reliable. It's more reliable than all these other books. It's got some interesting things in it. We pick it up, we read, we hear the voice of God speaking to us through the Holy Spirit. Now, throughout the Bible, we see things introduced saying, this is what God says. Or in, like in Hebrews 3, it says, this is what the Spirit says, talking about something that was written centuries before. Now, it has an ongoing speaking nature. The Spirit of God still speaks through his word to us today. But not only do you hear the voice of God, it says it is profitable. Now, you, you know what happens when you buy a book. They've all got a blurb on the back and they tell you they're profitable. But when the Almighty God says something's profitable, it's profitable. There's one thing you can guarantee when you pick up this book, this is good for you. It's profitable to teach, for reproving, for correction, which that's an interesting thing to point out in itself. 
Now, sometimes we come to parts of the Bible and we think, I don't agree with that. Guess what? God gave us his word so that if our view conflicts with his, his one is designed to correct and rebuke. It's not for us to say, God, you got it wrong. God has given us his word so we know what is right. But not just there to correct us, it's also there to train us in righteousness. Now, if we've been bought by Jesus Christ at a price and given the righteousness of Christ and we would want to live a life worthy of that calling, we would, should want to be people who are trained in righteousness. He's given us a book telling us how to communicate to us. So when you read the scriptures, don't just read it like you read any other textbook and think, okay, I've learned that, or good one, or that's a funny one, David took cheese out to the people in, when they're at war. When you read correction, hear that as the very word of God, the almighty God correcting you. That's not a light matter. When you see something that is comforting to you, remember that you are being comforted by the almighty God himself. When you see something by way of a promise, that this isn't just like a promise in a book that might seem like a good handy tip from some bloke down the road, that this is a promise from the almighty God who's able to do abundantly more than we can ever ask or imagine. This is not a book like every other book. This is as it claims to be the very word of God to achieve that result which which Paul wrote to Timothy that you might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's give thanks for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who reveals himself to mankind. Not just in, as we see the wonder of what you've done in creation, that's, that's a beautiful and wonderful thing. Even more beautiful that you would be so humbled that, that Christ would enter into this world to bear the punishment for our sin. That we might be, have our sins forgiven, that we might know what it means to be justified, declared right in your sight, to have a, a guaranteed hope and inheritance with you. But Lord, you have given us your word to to nurture us, to train us, to correct us. Lord, as we claim that, that we belong to you and that we love you, may we seek to hear your voice as we pick up your word. May we pick it up a lot more than we do. May we constantly want to know what God has to say. May we, when we hear the things that you say about the very things that we are struggling with in our life, may we hear them as the word of God to our situation and not just a potential tip to take or not take. We thank you that you do reveal yourself, and we thank you that you have preserved your word, that we might hold it in our hands today. And we thank you for Christ. And it's his name we pray. Amen.